So if you're joining with us for the first time, we have been in a series looking together at Paul's letter that he wrote to a church in first century Corinth. And this morning, he talks to this church about immaturity and maturity, about being a spiritual infant and about being a mature spiritual adult. And so I thought it was, a, it was a pretty good text for us to look at on Mother's Day because what mother among us doesn't want their child to move from infancy to adulthood, right? Unless you're one of those mothers that you need to be needed and you want to keep exerting control over your child so that they don't grow into an adult. But most of us want to see our children grow up. We want to see uh, those around us who we love actually grow into maturity and to adulthood. And so Paul is talking to this church about spiritual adulthood, spiritual maturity. And so I wanted to begin our discussion together by asking you this question. Uh, Did you ever ever have the experience growing up where you were doing something that you felt in the moment made you feel very big, very mature, very adult, but looking back, you now see that there was nothing that you did that was more immature and stupid than that. Anybody have a moment like that? Maybe even it was your mother that helped identify that for you. So when I was in junior high school, at just 13 years old, my brother and I used to take my mom's Chevy Caprice station wagon for a joyride around the neighborhood. And so children, do not try this one at home. This is just a a little story about what we used to do. So I was 13, my brother was 14, and it was before I had my growth spurt, and so I was really small back then, and you can just imagine what that was like, my brother and I driving around in this massive Chevy Caprice station wagon. And for the most part, we would keep uh, driving just around the immediate neighborhood. Uh, But one day, my parents were expected to be gone for hours and hours. And so we decided to move out of the neighborhood and onto the major streets. And so, you know, we decided, like, let's just go for it. So we got in the car, we cruised around the neighborhood, and then we worked up the courage, and we moved out onto the main streets and we were driving up Spring Street in Long Beach, and we were driving through one light and then another light, and then over on the right-hand side was Albertson's, used to be Lucky's grocery store. And they're pulling out of the driveway at Albertson's were my parents. And so my brother and I were driving the car, and we see my mom, and my mom and dad, and we're just like, ah, you know, we start. And we thought, maybe we'll go to Mexico. We thought, no, we can't do that. You know, we're going to have to go back home. And so we drive back home, and we park the car, and my parents' car is already at home. And so we walk into the backyard, and my mom is there in the backyard, and she has already started to water the plants. And she just looks at us, and she says, you boys are so lucky that your dad didn't see you. And she let us off the hook. Well, kind of. She used it as collateral, held it over our heads, and she had us as her servants for like the next six months. But, you know, looking back on that event, I remember, you know, in the moment, my brother and I, you know, driving around this big old car, you know, we thought we were so adult, so mature, so grown up. But looking back, I can't think of a stupider, more dangerous stunt that we could have pulled than this. I mean, could you imagine what a 13-year-old can do in a big old V8 like that? I mean, it's just crazy. Like, we could have killed somebody. And right in the moment when we thought we were so mature, so responsible, in that very moment, we couldn't have been more irresponsible, infantile, and stupid. Well, Paul is writing to a church that in this moment, 
considered themselves to be spiritually mature, considered themselves to be very grown up spiritually, very impressive. And yet Paul points out to them in the text we're looking at that in this moment, they could not be more infantile and immature than they could have imagined. And so Paul actually writes to address them on this issue. Now, it's interesting, in this text, and really as a, as a way to kind of cue you up to read this passage, you have, to, you have to know this. Paul is using three terms in our text that the church used in, the, in first century Corinth to describe themselves. And the three words in Greek were Sophia, teleos, and pneumatikos. And so the church in Corinth was using these three terms to describe themselves. The first one was Sophia, on which we've been talking about over the last couple weeks. Sophia is, of course, translated into the English word what? Wisdom. And in first century Corinth, again, don't think, you know, wise aphorisms or wise sayings or whatever. Think rhetoric and oratory, manipulative, coercive speech that presents yourself really well and puts down others and gets you ahead in the world. This was Greek Sophia. This was Greek wisdom. The second word, though, is teleos, which think telos, which means the end or the goal. And in the first century, this word was used by philosophical and religious schools to describe somebody who had made it, who had reached kind of the, the, you know, kind of like maturity philosophically or spiritually, and the church viewed themselves not only as wise, but also mature, that they had reached teleos. And then finally, pneumatikos. Uh, this word is translated in our English Bible, spiritual. And again, the church used this word to describe themselves. They were the spiritual ones. They were strong spiritually. They were mature. They were impressive. And so the church is using these words to describe themselves, and Paul jumps in in the passage we're going to look at, and he takes each one of these terms in three successive paragraphs, and he turns them on their head so that they and so that we might understand the nature of true spiritual wisdom that leads to genuine and authentic maturity. Now, this is an important topic for us to discuss because we live in a confused world. And it used to be that, you know, and, and there are so places in the world today where if you grow up, there is a body of wisdom, tradition that's handed on from one generation to the next. So that if you're a young mom, you learn about parenting, how to do it from your parents who learned it from their parents and their parents' parents, etc., etc. And there's this body of tradition and body of wisdom that is handed on from generation to generation. And people grow up in these cultures learning how to live life skillfully. But we live in an interesting time and a place that's marked by the deconstruction of previous wisdom, by old norms being broken down. And so what that means is that we live in a culture that in many ways is adrift, and it has been unmoored from previous wisdom and tradition. And so a lot of us, like if we, you know, maybe, you know, you were born and you were like a childhood Aristotle, and you feel like you need no voice other than your own to give you direction and wisdom in life. But most of us don't feel like we're in that boat. Most of us feel like we actually need wisdom in order to guide us into the good life, into wholeness, wholeness in ourselves, wholeness in our relationships. Well, Paul in our text talks to us about this 
kind of wisdom, the kind of wisdom that leads you into maturity and growth and wholeness. And so we're going to look at what he teaches here in these three successive paragraphs underneath three headings. First, we're going to look together at the nature of spiritual wisdom that leads us to maturity. Secondly, we'll see something about the source of true wisdom that leads us to maturity. And then finally, we'll look at the inverse of true wisdom that leads us to maturity. And so notice, let's talk first about the nature of spiritual wisdom that leads us to maturity. Look at what Paul says in chapter 2, verse 6. He says, yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom. Now stop there. Up to this point in 1 Corinthians, you would be forgiven if you felt like Paul was down on wisdom. Because he said that for his own preaching, he came without words of wisdom. He preached not with eloquent wisdom. And then he spoke about God, and he said that God came to destroy the wisdom of the wise, chapter 1. And then he said, and look around yourselves. Not many among you are wise. And then he asked the question, where is the wise? God has made them nothing. And so at this point in this letter, you would think that Paul was down on wisdom. But he says, I'm not down on wisdom. I'm actually down on the wrong kind of wisdom. And he says, among the mature, we do impart wisdom, but it's not the wisdom, church in Corinth, that you value. Look at what he says. Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom. Which you kind of think Paul's saying, wink, wink. They were um, complaining that they were so mature, but Paul wasn't bringing them wisdom. And Paul says, well, I speak wisdom, but it's among the mature. You people are spiritual infants, so we haven't talked wisdom yet. He's kind of mocking them in some ways. He says, yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But instead, we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God. Now stop there. Paul speaks here about a secret, hidden wisdom of God. Now what on earth is he talking about? Well, there are three types of wisdom. First, you could say there is the wisdom of the world. And the wisdom of the world is being manifest in Corinth, it's manifest in America in the 21st century, and it is that person that uses boasting, self-presentation, rhetoric, manipulation, image management in order to impress people and to get ahead. And quite frankly, that looks like wisdom in our culture and day because it's those kind of people that get ahead in business and in the economy and in politics. It happens all the time. And so the first type of wisdom we could say is the wisdom of the world. And Paul is getting on court. That's the kind of wisdom he's down on. He says, you should avoid that wisdom. But there's a second kind of wisdom, not the wisdom of the world, but the wisdom of creation. And this kind of wisdom is the wisdom that is spoken of in the book of Proverbs. You see, in God's good world, there is an order, there's a structure, there's the way things work that make life go well. And if you go with the grain of the universe, life goes well for you. And if you go against the grain of the universe, you're going to get splinters. Amen? And so Paul, you know, I mean, the book of Proverbs actually exhorts us to attend to the way creation works, to observe nature, observe the hand of God in the world, and learn. 
He says, for example, go to the ant, you sluggard, consider her ways and be wise. And then he says, I I went to the field of a lazy man, and, and he describes what it was. And what is he saying? He's saying, I went and I was attending to creation. I was attending to what happens in the world when you live this way or that way, and I looked and I learned and I gained wisdom. And so there's the wisdom in creation. So there's the wisdom of the world, there's the wisdom in creation, but Paul here is talking about a third kind of wisdom, and this is what you could call the wisdom of the cross. And this for Paul is a secret and hidden kind of wisdom, which he says in verse seven, God decreed before the ages for our glory. It's a wisdom which none of the rulers of this age had understood. It's a wisdom which if they had understood it, they would have not crucified the Lord of glory. And this wisdom, unlike the wisdom that's found in creation, is a counterintuitive kind of wisdom. Because it says that the way up is down. The way to find your life is to give your life. To live, you need to die. It's only after suffering that you'll experience glory. And this wisdom was manifest in the crucifixion of the Son of God. And what happens in the cross? Well, God who exists as etern- in eternity past, forever as the God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God the Son leaves glory the glory of the infinite eternal sea of love that is the Trinity. The eternal son leaves glory and he immerses himself in suffering and in shame. He shares in our suffering and shame so that he might bear in his body your suffering and shame and bring it to an end so that he might carry you with with him back to glory. This is a self-giving, sacrificial love that gives itself away for the flourishing and the well-being of others. And he says, this is the secret and the hidden wisdom that's manifest in the cross. You see, the nature, the the very heart of true spiritual wisdom is the wisdom of the crucified Son of God who gives himself away in passionate love so that you can share in the glory of God. You know, as we live throughout our days, there's these voices that call to us from these three different sources of wisdom. There's the voice of the world that calls you that the way to get ahead is through manipulation, coercion, self-presentation, image management, looking good, presenting well, boasting, and it works. And then there's a voice from creation that says, look, attend to the way things work. Notice the good life and follow it and walk in the path. And then there's the voice of the cross that says, look, give yourself away for others. Yesterday, I was out surfing, and I was surfing down in Seal Beach, at Seal Beach Pier, and there was this guy out right when I paddled out who was catching every wave. And I was getting a little bit frustrated with this guy because, you know, he was getting all of the waves. I was like, come on, man, save some for the rest of us. And so the, the normal etiquette in surfing is, is that you catch a wave, you ride it to the beach, and then you paddle back out, and the next guy who hasn't caught a wave yet, he has priority position, and then he catches a wave, and then so on and so forth, and so on and so forth. Sounds fair, doesn't it? Don't ever say that surfers aren't fair. They're very fair. But uh, so he... he uh, 
so this guy, he was, uh, he was ignoring, he was completely ignoring the regular way of doing things. And he would go out and he would get priority on me and he would jockey me and he'd compete and he'd get the wave. And I was getting so frustrated. And then the voice of worldly wisdom said, compete, jockey the guy, paddle around him, give him stink eye, you know, kind of like intimidate him because I'm so intimidated. You should see me with a tight wetsuit on. I'm huge, you know. But um, the voice of worldly wisdom says, you know, intimidate him. And oftentimes that works, right? If you've got the chops, you can do that. The voice of creational wisdom said, you know, just pay attention to the surf, Josh. He's going to eventually get a wave. You're going to go in and you'll find, you'll get a wave. You'll get, you know, maybe go a little bit further in and, and just attend carefully to the surf, The voice of the wisdom of the cross said, Josh, ignore the fact that you've been losing waves and go be friendly to this guy. Bear in yourself the wrong and move toward him with grace and kindness. Now, that might sound a little bit trite, and it is. That's a trite example, and yet you get the point. And there's, there's these different voices of wisdom that are constantly calling for us. And for spiritual wisdom, at the very heart of spiritual wisdom is that third and most beautiful and magnificent type of wisdom. It is the wisdom of self-giving love that says, look, ground yourself in this wisdom and you will find that you are loved beyond your imagination. Live out of this wisdom and you will find a source of life and love and security that enables you to let go and to give away and to serve and to sacrifice. And then embody this wisdom in your relationships at home and in your relationships on the job and, and, and at work. And of course, this is the wisdom most centrally, that we see in our moms. Amen? Often it's that self-sacrificing love that is for the good of the other. So Paul is speaking to us here about the nature of wisdom, but I want you to see as we go on that he talks to us not only about the nature of wisdom, but he also talks to us about the source of wisdom or how we can get it, how it's revealed to us. Look what he says in verse 9. He says, but as it is written... What no eye has seen and no ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared beforehand for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, yea, even the depths of God. So he says the truth about God is hidden to us. I mean, who among us could speak confidently about the creator of all things. I mean, think for a moment, what do you actually know about the ground of all being, the God who is wholly other than us? I remember, you know, a few years back, sitting in our living room with some neighbors of ours that we had, we had at this neighbor party, invited these people over, and we were having this conversation about spirituality and about the divine. Uh, we kind of called our, we, we, uh, would refer to what we did was uh, impolite dinner conversations because we like to talk about religion and politics together, even though we all came from different persuasions and perspectives. But we're talking about God, and uh, the guy who lived across the street from me who had a PhD in postmodern German literature and who was a, a pretty extreme skeptic. He just said, look, he says, how can you possibly claim to know anything about God? I mean, if there is a God, 
How could you, I mean, think about you. You're just a little speck of dust on this little speck of dust called the earth revolving around this little star that's just one of hundreds of billions of stars, which is in in our Milky Way galaxy, which is just one of anywhere from 100 to 400 billion galaxies in our universe. He says, how can you possibly claim to speak with confidence about the divine? And Paul would agree. Paul says, What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. Paul is saying, look, yeah, God is beyond us. He is transcendent. He is eternal, immortal, invisible, the holy, other, only wise God. God is unknowable except that God has chosen to reveal himself to humanity. In 1961, the Russians were able to put the first man into outer space. And when the astronaut came home, Khrushchev was reported to have asked him, did you see God there? Kind of a mock of uh, theistic, you know, Westerners or Christians, you know. And in response, C.S. Lewis wrote an article called The Seeing Eye. And in this article, C.S. Lewis said, if there is a God, you would never come to know him the way somebody on the first floor would come to know somebody on the second floor. And if you live on this first floor, how do you get to know somebody on the second floor? You simply go upstairs and you meet them. But he said, God is not on the second floor. He's not an object in our universe. He's not, you know, some giant fair sky, you know, a sky fairy that uh, tinkers with events on earth and sort of intelligently designs things from time to time. God is the ground of all being. He is the eternal, immortal, invisible one. So you don't go find him in outer space. And so Lewis says the way you could know God, the only way you could relate to them is the way that Hamlet could relate to Shakespeare. And he said, if Hamlet and Shakespeare were to ever meet, it would have to be at Shakespeare's doing, for Hamlet could initiate nothing. And God has initiated with us. He has exposed himself, he has opened up his heart, and he has revealed himself, he has disclosed himself to us. And the fullest disclosure of God's true self is in Jesus Christ. You wanna know what God is like? Look at Jesus. Jesus is the fullest disclosure of God's true self. Jesus is the most of God you could ever hope to know. And so if you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. Here is the wisdom of God being manifest to us. And yet, look what Paul says. He says, it's not enough for God to reveal himself to us through Jesus. It also requires a work of the Spirit. You see, sometimes you can be in the very presence of something that really should make you excited and do backflips, but you have no idea because you don't see properly. When I was in high school, we used to always go down surfing at Bolsa Chica State Beach, and when we'd go down to Bolsa Chica State Beach, we'd go down oftentimes before the sun rose at like five o'clock in the morning, and you'd go down there, and before your eyes very often there was something that would be a cause for joy. It was perfect surf at Bolsa Chica. And yet, it was there covered in the veil of darkness before. Even though it was before eyes, it was in darkness for us. And so we would pull our car up as far as we could, and we'd turn on our brights to expose the surf. 
And what Paul is saying about the Holy Spirit here is that the Spirit shines the light in our hearts on the cross so that we see the cross not as an instrument of foolishness, but as God's greatest act of love for you and for your glory. And when the Holy Spirit opens your eyes, you you don't just see, you see. I was reading a book recently by a man who had grown up in the church, and he said that when he was eight years old, he met Jesus, and his, his life was transformed, And for the first several months uh, or years of his life with God, he said, Jesus was my best friend. And he was kind of overweight, and he said he was bullied. He was kind of a nerd when he was in in, uh, in middle school. And he he said, but Jesus was his best friend. It was like his closest friend. But then when he graduated college, he got married, he started to have all these doubts about his faith, and he was really into science and he saw this conflict between science and the Bible, and then his parents were divorced after many years. His dad, who he respected as this man of God, had left his wife for another woman, and then he poured over the Bible to get answers for his problems, but he felt like he read through the Bible, and all he could see was divine violence in the Bible, and he said his faith was just crushed under the weight of all of this, and over time, his faith died. And so he rejected Christianity, walked away from the faith, and he was immersing himself kind of in the world of science and engineering and technology. This was his field. And he was invited by somebody to go to a, uh, uh, an event for creatives that was taught by a very well-known sort of Christian pastor and celebrity kind of guy. And so he goes to this event And uh, he found the event totally invigorating. This guy was dynamic. He was a captivating speaker. And he was all on about creativity. And he said, but he closed the entire event by sharing together in the Eucharist, in the Lord's Supper and communion. And he was like, why are you doing this? This is something we did at our camps back in junior high. You know, this is lame. You know, it's cheesy to close some event with Christians and non-Christians about this, in this way, about uh, with the Lord's Supper. And he said that the the man who was speaking said, in this act of sharing in the bread and the cup, he said, we're reminded that Christ's body was broken and he was poured out for others. And he said, even if you don't believe, I want you just to imagine that God might be calling you to be broken and pour yourself out for others. And he said, and this act is an act whereby you can be reminded of, of what God has done and what God is calling us to do. And so he invited everybody who wanted to to come forward and receive communion. And this guy said that he got up out of his seat and he said he didn't know why, but he walked forward. He was just kind of, he said he had his arms crossed. He was rolling his eyes. And, and just as he got up there, he was about ready to turn away and walk away without receiving the Lord's Supper. And he said, the pastor looked him in the eyes and he said, the body of Christ broken for you. And he said he heard this voice that was far outside of his own scientific explanations that said, I was here for you when you were eight, and I'm here for you right now. And he said that began a new journey for him of engaging with God again. But what is that? That's what Paul is speaking of here. He says, the the things God has revealed to us through his spirit, the spirit shining his light on his heart so that he could see the weight and apprehend what God has done for him. And why is the spirit uniquely qualified to do that? Well, this is what Paul explains. 
He says, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows the person's thought accepts the Spirit of that person which is in him. And many of you have thought that before. You've been in conversation maybe with your spouse, husbands, you've had your wives, they're, they're acting in a way that's conf- it's confounding to you, and you think, who knows what's going on inside of her except the spirit of that person which is in her. And maybe, wives, you felt that way about your husbands. Well, Paul says that's the spirit. The spirit knows the depths of God. He knows what's inside God because God is, or the spirit of God is God. And he says, now we have received not the spirit of this world, but the spirit who is from God. Why? So that we might understand the things graciously given to us by God. And I think what he's saying there is that the spirit was given to shine the light in our hearts so that we might apprehend the grace and love of God for us in the cross of Jesus. And Paul says, and we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom. This is not about rhetoric and eloquence, but they're words taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. For the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is unable to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. He's saying, look, you think you're all up because you're into rhetoric and oratory and manipulative speech of the sophists and all this stuff, and Paul's like, nonsense. Like, a true spiritual person is a person who is impacted by and whose life is being transformed by the grace and love of God in the cross of Jesus. Friends, you want to know what true spiritual maturity looks like? A truly spiritual mature person. It is somebody who is in love with Jesus. And they have been moved by the work of Jesus on their behalf. They've been transformed, and they're starting to, in small ways and in large ways, embody the self-giving love of Jesus in their life. Paul says, the spiritual person discerns all things, but himself is discerned by no one for who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him. But we have the mind of Christ. Again, the mind of Christ being the cruciform, self-giving cross of Christ. So we see the nature of true spiritual wisdom, and we've seen the source of true spiritual wisdom. It's the spirit at work meeting us, opening up our lives and our hearts. But I want you to see where Paul closes out this section. He begins to talk to us about the inverse of genuine spiritual wisdom that leads to maturity. Now hang on, and I want you to see what he says here. After he goes off about all of true wisdom, he says this, But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh who are infants in Christ. I fed you with milk and not solid food because you were not ready for it. And this language of milk and solid food and infants and adults, these are stock terminology in the ancient world to describe people who were out and who weren't getting it and people who were in and who were really starting to get it, you know, in the philosophical kind of religious schools or whatever. And of course, the Corinthian church viewed that they were the ones who got it. They were the spiritually mature ones. They were the adults. And Paul says, no, you're infants, Why? For he says, you are still in the flesh, for where there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving in only a human way? 
For when one says, I am of Paul, and I follow Apollos, and another, or I, I follow Apollos, he says, are you not behaving merely human? So do you see what he's doing here? He's saying, you have chosen the wrong measurement for what true maturity is. You think it has to do with a teacher you attach yourself to, or maybe in our context, a church you're a part of, or a church program that you champion, that you've always loved, that you're into, or maybe some theological positions that you yourself have read over and over again, and you get, he says, you think that's what makes you spiritually mature, but he says the true standard is not your knowledge, it's not your involvement in programs, it's not the pastor of the church that you attach yourself to, the true measurement of true, spirit, of true spiritual wisdom is love and unity. And when you're acting in divisive ways, he says, you are acting like an infant. Now, I think it's ironic, don't you? That in our churches in America in the 21st century, very often the most divisive churches that contain people who have, you know, they're always up in arms about this guy or that, or when you read their Twitter feed or them on Facebook and the comments they're making or whatever, it's oftentimes full of nothing but critique and vitriol and hate toward people on a different political spectrum or a theological spectrum or whatever. And yet it's these very people that oftentimes fancy themselves to be spiritually mature. And Paul says, no, you are not. There's that great line in The Last Jedi where uh, Rey is going to, uh, you know, Luke Skywalker as her mentor, and Luke says, what do you even know about the Force? And she rattles off, like, the statement about the Force, and he looks back at her and he says, every word you just said is wrong. And it's almost as if Paul is looking back at this church and saying, look, every way in which you think about spirituality and maturity is wrong. And I think it's a fair question to ask, what about you? What about us? What is your measure of genuine spiritual maturity of an adult in Jesus? For Paul, it is somebody who most supremely has their life anchored in the cross and in the resurrection, the event of Jesus Christ. And this event has warmed their heart, it's invigorating their passion, it is moving them out, and then it's most supremely manifest in their life of sacrificial, self-giving love for other people, so that others might be whole, so that others might be built up. This is genuine spiritual wisdom that is maturing. So this morning, God is calling us in this passage to get the right view, the right perspective on spirituality, maturity, wisdom. It's not primarily about knowledge you have or programs you champion or a tradition in the church that you're trying to guard and protect. It is primarily manifest in the cross of Jesus that we embrace and that we embody in our life together. And so may the Spirit of God enable us to be a community 
that lives out of and that glories in and that champions the cruciform love of God in Christ and that takes that love out in our deeds in the world. Let's pray together.